Welcome again to the Novice to Office podcast. I am your shining light of civic truth, Trey Bam. Thank you again so much to everyone who is listening or watching. I am truly blessed and humbled, and I hope you're learning something. Uh, one of my chief motivations for doing this podcast is to try to help us all return to the political basics, some of that old-time civic religion. And thanks again to everyone at Market Scale for their hard work and support of the face made for the podcast. Uh, in today's episode, we will attempt to pull off the miracle at Cedar Park. Our subject matter has been called The Miracle at Philadelphia. This was the title of Catherine Bowen's famous book from the 1960s about the creation of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, we're going to create The Miracle at Cedar Park, my home in the Austin, Texas suburbs, because I'm going to do a podcast on the Constitution in less than 30 minutes. So here goes. I wore a tie given the seriousness of the subject. Uh, our story has a protagonist. I'm not going to call him a hero because I want to hear what you think in the comments. But James Madison is indisputably the protagonist of the story of the Constitution. Indeed, he might be the most politi pivotal political figure in American history you hear the least about as the place became the formal United States. Now, I'm a big Washington guy, and we'll probably devote a later podcast to him, but I'm skipping over him for the moment as we lay out these first uh, few episodes on basic American government. We'll talk more about what actually happened uh, during the Revolutionary War another time, I promise. But today is James Madison Day. Uh, I'm, I'm not much of a Jefferson guy. I personally think he was a spoiled brat. Uh, yes, he Jefferson drafted the Declaration, but the final version was done by a committee. And as I said in episode one, he copied some of the document anyway from John Locke. And we'll see next week uh, when we talk about how political parties emerged in the United States. It was really Madison who made the difference there in what became known as Jeffersonianism. Uh, definitely the practical political impact of it. So this little five-foot, soft-spoken, sickly guy, James Madison, had an outsized and regularly overlooked impact on how American government got going. And he's a plain old protagonist because, as I think you'll see, his motives were at times a little cynical and pedestrian, at least in contrast to what many Americans may think patriotic ethics should be. Uh, Madison was born in Virginia in 1751. So much of who he was and came to be is rooted in the fact that he was absolutely a man of leisure. His dad and his family were among the wealthiest in Virginia, lots of land, slaves, tobacco, and other crops. Madison was the oldest of a dozen children, and he basically was indulged to go after whatever intellectual pursuits he desired. I wouldn't say he was spoiled, and he wasn't a slouch. I mean, he kind of had an anxious health that kept him inside. It seems like he had a little bit of hypochondria. But, but when it came to developing his mind, Madison worked very, very hard. Uh, he quickly exceeded the teachings of a private family tutor, uh, he, and he enrolled in Princeton when he was very young. Back then, it was called the College of New Jersey. He f flew through Princeton and got his B.A. in two years. He also got involved in debate at Princeton, uh, and by as and also 
by this time, most of the colleges in the West were teaching courses on the early Enlightenment philosophers, and Madison really got into that. Uh, so there's a strong sense that Madison got the political bug during this time. And this was truly what motivated him throughout his life. Uh, for example, he would study law as a means to for learning politics, but he never actually became a practicing lawyer. And he would take extended time off to read a bunch of philosophy. Uh, and he had the resources to do this. He also had no girlfriend. And he would not marry until he was in the 40s. That's how committed he was to politics. Uh, he had these almost unlimited resources to support himself through his father's estate. And what he did was support with using them. He supported a hyperactive political life. Uh, he was fighting age during the revolution, but he didn't go where the shooting was. Instead, he stayed in Virginia and helped set up the new state of Virginia after the decoration. Uh, between that and his health, Madison very much wanted to create the structure of the United States and not really shoot at people. I suppose someone could fault him for cowardice or maybe even elitism, you know, wanting to stay in the rear with the gear. Yet there's something to be said, I think, for wanting to build a solid governing foundation for your new country, for your experiment, and knowing yourself well enough that you could make the most contribution doing that. So I'll give him a little bit of a pass. By staying in Virginia, Madison became friends with Thomas Jefferson, who was eight years his senior. Uh, Jefferson had returned to Williamsburg, the Virginia capital, after the Declaration of Independence, and he began setting up a self-governing state because they, you know, had gotten rid of their king. Uh, Jefferson eventually became the governor of Virginia during the war, and he immediately moved the state capital to the tiny town of Richmond further up the James River. Uh, Jefferson observed correctly that Williamsburg had too much of those old ties to the elite English noble families and wanted to move revolutionary operations out of areas of the state that were still loyal to the crown. Uh, Jefferson also used his influence to get his new friend James Madison elected to the Second Continental Congress, which was still meeting in Philadelphia. Uh, they had become the de facto government of the new United States as the war got going. Uh, they were chased out of Philadelphia a couple of times, but that's mainly where they were. And this was like putting a duck in the water for Madison. While serving, Madison used his talents to help draft the U.S. government version 2.0, a structure called the Articles of Confederation. Now, bear with me as I describe what the Articles of Confederation were. The founders were sensitive to looking like they were replacing the crown which just, with just another set of snobs, which they kind of were. Uh, and they knew that they had opened a box a Pandora's box of democracy by demanding of the king no taxation without representation. And so they felt they had to better make sure that people didn't abandon them out of hypocrisy. Moreover, those colonies that we talked about last week were fiercely independent. Only security bound them together, and even that was tenuous. So as things progressed, and the Second Continental Congress had to try to act like a nation, the founders realized that they needed a stronger template of authority, and so they came up with the Articles of Confederation. And, and that's why they're called that. A confederation is considered a softer version of a unified government in that the members retain their sovereignty over the central entity. 
this was the model of the multi-state assembly that the Southern Confederacy would use in 1861. This was what the Confederation of Independent Systems used when Count Dooku led his rebellion against the Galactic Republic in 24 BBY. The Articles then were this clumsy structure that empowered the United States to negotiate over war and state issues, foreign policy, but it did not supersede the new state authorities. And it was ham-fisted because in order for the U.S. to do anything, all the states had to agree under the Articles. Nothing could be done without unanimity. So each state had a veto over the other. Uh, and I mean, this is kind of like the United Nations Security Council today, but the Articles of Confederation, though, as well, they couldn't tax. Uh, they could issue bonds, they could borrow, but the only way they could then pay for those bonds was to cut a requisition to all the states for the money. Uh, the U.S. At, government at this time was still called the Congress, but the Articles still put the government at the mercy of the states for anything and everything. So it, it was just not efficient. Uh, the Articles were formally adopted in 1781 once the final state, Maryland, ratified them. Uh, and this couldn't have happened at a more opportune time as the French agreed to formally recognize the U.S. Uh, in February of 1781. And the Articles, and they got involved in the war, and the Articles' brightest moment then was in, was in authorizing Congress uh, to accept the Paris Peace Treaty of 1783, thus ending the war. Uh, but in the aftermath, the Articles proved inept at dealing with serious economic problems. By far the biggest problem was the national debt. Um, as a result of the war, now again, indulge me while I walk us through this. When a nation fights a war, then as now, expenses go through the roof. Uh, for example, it is estimated the U.S. fought World War II by borrowing at 105, 110% of GDP. World War I and the U.S. Civil War saw a similar level of mortgaging. The Iraq and Afghanistan wars accounted for almost half the nation's new debt uh, as a result of September 11th attacks. It's always been this way, going back to ancient times. The American Revolution was no different, even though the government was so tiny. Uh, at first, King Louis XVI of France cut a subsidy check to the Second Continental Congress. He, he just gave him cash to get going, and this was a way for him to stir the pot against his enemy, the British. But almost immediately after that, as General George Washington, who was appointed by the Congress, uh, began operations in New England, badly needed cash uh, was had to be sent to him. And by cash, I meant gold and silver, hard currency. Well, where did it come from? Well, Benjamin Franklin and John Adams were dispatched to France and the Netherlands, respectively, to get international loans. But that took forever. Uh, the best source for ready cash, as well as physical supplies, was, was at home. Uh, at first... The states raised their own armies and issued bonds to bring in gold and silver to do so. Uh, later, the Continental Congress did the same thing. They, the, both the states and the Congress would issue these bonds to the regular citizens for their gold. And by regular citizens, I mean, obviously, the wealthier ones who actually had gold and silver. Uh, or they would write a note to a farmer for his animals and his wagons and supplies. Uh, and sometimes notes would be issued to the soldiers in, in lieu of cash. Well, then how do you pay off the notes and the bondholders? Well, you tax. 
Uh, some states, especially when they recaptured their ports after the war, they could charge a duty, you know, on imports. But by far the biggest means of collecting reimbursement of all these bonds was through taxation. So guess what this did? W- what do you think would happen if everyone, even the poor people, had to pay a tax that ultimately went to a bondholder who had been part of the wealthy elite? Well, deep social resentment set in. On top of this, all the gold and silver ran out, especially after the war. It was in limited quantities. And there are several reasons for this, which I'm not going to get into here. But if foreign creditors and bondholders only want hard currency and payment, then you've got a compounded problem. But now in America, we have these new states that are functioning according to all these happy and trendy democratic principles as espoused by the revolution. So then what happened? Well, all the regular people, the taxpayers, and they were mainly farmers, uh, got their state reps to fight the power. How? By issuing paper money in what is called a fiat currency, which you can use to pay the taxes as well as personal creditors. Uh, But when a government issues a fiat currency, which is what we have today, everyone has to accept it. Uh, But there's still not enough hard money in the economy, so that paper money depreciates rapidly almost immediately after it's printed. During and after the Revolutionary War, the nation found itself in an economic death spiral with heavy taxes, little to no growth, and social resentment. Times were hard. Things came to a head in 1786 when the state of Massachusetts, to cover their share of a recent congressional requisition, passed a law imposing a crushing tax on farmers. This was a tax upon a tax upon a tax. And, you know, everyone bemoaned the irony of the crippling tax burden in spite of getting rid of the king. The Massachusetts government also, uh, and many in the country were opposed to this, also wouldn't issue paper currency because that hurt creditors. Uh, And with paper money, for example, a loan of $100 could be paid back with fiat currency that was really only worth about $50. So a great deal for debtors but it's a ripoff for creditors. So in response to the taxes and no way to pay, a rebellion led by war veterans Daniel Shays and others blocked a county court in Massachusetts from sitting in 1786. Uh, These courts had the authority to seize personal possessions for payment. Uh, The rebels also went after the Federal Armory in western Massachusetts in Springfield. The rebellion would last several months, not quite a year, Uh, The Massachusetts militia was called out, paid for again by the state elite, and the rebellion was scattered. And there was some bloodshed, uh, but there was even more looting by the rebels, which caused them ultimately to lose the PR battle. James Madison to the rescue. Madison, ever the political activist, still wanted to create a fortune of his own, independent of his father, and he thought he could do it in real estate. He had been part of a delegation after the revolution to discuss terms with the Iroquois who had been allies with the British. Uh, And after the meeting, he toured the Mohawk Valley in what is now upstate New York. He was certain that speculating here would grant him a personal fortune that would get him out on his own. Uh, But (laughs) he couldn't get a development loan for the land deal uh, due to the hardships in the country in spite of his family's status. Uh, So he wrote a letter to his rich pal, Thomas Jefferson, who, after the war, he had gone to Paris 
to establish diplomatic relations with France, Jefferson replied that no one in Europe was interested as they were convinced any deal resting on American credit was a loser. I believe it was a defining moment for Madison. This noble founding father realized a legally stable economic system that supported creditors was what truly aided or ailed the barely standing United States. Historian Woody Holton puts it this way in his book, Unruly Americans and the Origins of the Constitution. Quote, Madison would not really reach manhood until he became the head of his own household. And to do that, he would need to establish a guilt edge credit rating, not only for himself, but for the nation as a whole, end quote. Madison then set about organizing what was called a convention of the states to revise, update, and replace the clunky Articles of Confederation because they weren't getting it done. Along with fellow Continental Congressman Alexander Hamilton, Madison and others got elected as delegates to this convention to be held in Philadelphia in May of 1787. Everyone knew something had to be done about the nation's economic problems. That, that wasn't a question. But, and so the, but the concern was how to do this without overriding democratic principles. Madison arrived at the convention having done most of the homework uh, already. Uh, he laid out his first template for the Constitution. It was literally called the Virginia Plan. And, and some of us may recall the different subplots and the dramas that went into the creation of the Constitution here. I'm not going to go over those, uh, maybe in later episodes, uh, but I'm going to tell one that maybe not as is not as well known, but it was very critical. Uh, in his plan, Madison called for congressional districts that were big enough to be insulated from organized hyper-democracy. So big districts. One of the problems he saw in the states was that from election to election, entire slates could be thrown out based on the fervor over taxes, debts, paper money, all those controversies. So Madison wanted large districts where people couldn't organize as effectively and thus cause this kind of volatility. Probably what would become Madison's greatest contribution to civics came at the very end of the Philadelphia Convention. He thought a district should have no less than 15,000 or so population. And this was already very radical from a revolutionary standpoint. Thomas Paine, for example, who was amongst the most radical he proposed much, much smaller districts, uh, several hundred, in keeping with the spirit of the times. But the convention delegates seized on the insulated district idea by Madison, and they went a step further. In an effort to protect the elite and the creditors even more, they wanted to make the minimum size 40,000 people. And this would have translated to barely more than 60 congressmen in the whole House of U U.S. Representatives, which would be serving... Uh, three, three and a half million people. In an effort to temper the snobbery, Massachusetts delegate Nathaniel Gorham in Shays Rebellion, undoubtedly fresh in his mind, proposed an amendment to reduce that number to 30,000 people. In the only moment of the convention when he spoke, George Washington, who was the presiding officer, never said anything, but he threw his support behind Gorman for fear that the giant districts would imperil ratification of the whole thing. And this is one of the reasons I'm, why I'm a Washington guy. The guy had an intuitive sense of how to balance the people with the practical. 
The Constitution then went on to be ratified in a wild series of state assemblies. Uh, and what ultimately carried the day in those those debates, especially in the South, was over security more than economic stability. But that's not for lack of trying. It's Madison, Hamilton, and many others who wrote pro-constitutional essays across the country, uh, insisting that Constitution would cure everyone's financial woes. Uh, Madison's essays were included in a body of writings known as the Federalist Papers and Hamilton's. Uh, Madison stated his desire for a federal republic very clearly in Federalist Number 10 by saying of pure democracy, quote, democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. I believe he had in mind his ability to get a real estate development loan when he used the word property. <laughs> in more than a few of the states, such as Virginia, the Constitution was ratified only after guys like Madison promised to amend it to protect personal rights once the legislative structure was set up. Uh, the other promise per, pushed by Hamilton was that a bill would also be introduced to take on all the state debts, which would in turn alleviate the local tax burdens. And this this did, in fact, happen. Uh, Congress would pay for everything, in other words. The federal government would would now have the power to tax and would be on, the on, and would be the only government entity that could collect duties at the ports and tax incoming foreign goods, which which is also known as a tariff. Uh, this was set up in Article 10 of the Constitution, a concise paragraph that, in effect, weakened the states in just a few words. That single article, Article 10, more than anything, makes the Constitution really an economic development document, to which all the other articles about legislative powers, the president, and the judiciary are all really subordinate. Uh, today, we don't think about this true force of the Constitution at all. Hamilton kept his promise, uh, as I said, and came up with a way as Secretary of the Treasury to take on all the war debts. Uh, Madison kept his promise, and as one of the first congressmen from Virginia, introduced the bill that would become the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, also known as the Bill of Rights. Uh, and this latter group was, is what most of us think of when the Constitution is mentioned. We get really worked up over an issue related to one of the amendments, but but that really had nothing to do with my Madison's primary purpose, which was creditworthiness. <laughs> but then again, the ability to borrow, borrow might be more at the heart of being an American <laughs> than our supposed rights. <laughs> the father of the Constitution finally inherited his father's estate at age 50, and this was as rich as he ever got. I mentioned. Madison didn't marry till he was in his 40s. This was to a widow with one son named Dolly Payne, uh, a vivacious social driver. Dolly would actually go on to pioneer much of the role of the first lady when her husband became president in 1809. Really, before that, actually, she had served Jefferson in a similar capacity. Who, Jefferson was a widower uh, when he was president, and she, she was familiar with everything. Dolly instituted Hail to the Chief, as the musical intro for when the president enters the room, uh, as it was a way for everyone to stop and not overlook her, her short and skinny husband. <laughs> uh, Dolly's incredible 
Ability to throw a party, however, wouldn't slow down after they left office. And in addition to some squandering by his stepson, Madison and Dolly would die with the considerable loss of even the inherited wealth. Uh, was Madison a hero to our liberal democracy? Let me know in the comments uh, below. In our next episode, we'll talk more about family matters when I discuss George Washington's two sons, the birth of American political parties. Don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe. Until then, keep it free.